Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the def defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. If, therefore be, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, not, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Please be seated. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Hopefully those names sound familiar to you, having just completed seven weeks looking at Revelation 2 and 3, these letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Christ, as we saw, had a message for each one of those churches. And within the context of each church, Christ had a way of designating himself to those churches. He spoke of good things happening in those churches, a commendation. There were also many rebukes, warnings, and we saw in each one of those particular letters a call to overcome and a call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we saw Christ, and we were able to see from that text how he knows everything about these churches, for Revelation says that he stands in the midst of the lampstands, taking inventory of all that happens. And we saw there that one church had left her first love. Another was exhorted to be faithful until the end. One church was not holding forth sound doctrine, allowing a mixture of doctrinal influences to permeate the life of the church. One church simply allowed a Jezebel spirit to continue, throwing the body into confusion through works of immorality. Another church had a name. They were known in the community. But according to Christ, they were dead. One church was faithful to keep God's word. And yet another seemed to be straddling the fence. They were spiritually lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. The message today is written to another church. In fact, when you see the beginning of Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. This letter that's being penned is a a letter to another church. 
To give you another proof or evidence of that fact, we keep reading in verse 1, with the bishops and deacons. With those who were serving in leadership among the saints in Philippi. Philippi, you might recall, was a Roman colony. Philippi sat within the region of Macedonia. And Philippi, you might recall in Acts 16, Paul's second missionary journey. He ends up in Philippi, not on his own doing, just as a side note. Remember the vision he received to go to Macedonia? And he goes, and we see two primary accounts there in Acts 16. One where he meets Lydia. And we also see the Philippian jailer and his family. Right, we're introduced to those folks in, in, in Acts chapter 16. So we see this occurring in Philippi. Paul is writing this particular letter from Roman imprisonment. It's a thank you letter. Chapter 4 in particular, you, you arrive at that. He, he's very thankful. And even at the beginning in chapter 1, he's thanking God upon every remembrance of the saints in Philippi. It's also a letter of joy, is it not? A letter of joy. Paul had a deep love and affection for this group of believers. Philippians 1 verse 8 would tell us that. This letter is also written with a view toward eternity. Things of eternal significance. Philippians chapter 3. It's a letter written to exhort the believers onward in their love for one another. We'll see this here uh, in our text for today. But we see it in chapters 1 and 2 in particular. We see this letter was also a personal recounting of the effect of Paul's imprisonment. That it had on other believers. You know, in chapter 1, he says, and Gary read verse 12, this gospel has been advanced because, Paul says, of my chains in Christ. Not because I was a criminal. Because of my chains in Christ. We see this letter also, and this is where we'll be primarily today. This letter is a call to unity in Christ. To live out that unity in the midst of adversaries. In the midst of what the text would say a crooked and perverse generation. You see the seven churches in Asia. Revelation 2 and 3. They may have had some different trials. But they too are in need of what Paul shares right here in the text. This message to the saints in Philippi. You see church the message delivered today. To the church at Philippi is a message hope in Christ also needs to hear. Every church needs this particular message because this message is central to the church. He's speaking to the church. Let's be aware of that as we listen to the text this morning. And if we look at the text, I really would like for us to begin in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. A church, I believe the text this morning is calling you to sit up and to take notice. There is a conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is a conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now when I read that, it also stands to reason 
there is a conduct which is not worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, how does Paul characterize the conduct worthy of Christ? He says, whether I come to see you or am absent, that I may hear of your affairs. What is it he's hoping to hear? What is this conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ? That you stand fast in one spirit, stand fast with one mind, stand fast striving together for the one faith, the faith of the gospel. You know, the word, which actually is several in our English language, the let your conduct be worthy. You know, it was expected of the citizens of Rome to carry themselves well. They were expected to, to live a certain way in order that they might uphold the name of Rome. To be a citizen of Rome meant something. And with Philippi being a Roman colony, one's Roman citizenship was held very dearly. A citizen of Rome brought honor or shame to the city based upon one's conduct. And you know, Paul's desire to come and visit the saints in Philippi is there, it's evident in the text. But there is the possibility as he writes, do you see this? There's the possibility that he may not make a return visit. Paul's point here in the text is this. Regardless of whether I make it back for a visit or not, only let your conduct be worthy, not of Rome, but of the gospel of Christ. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's pointing the church to her heavenly citizenship with Christ. He's saying, this is what matters. And what matters most, this conduct that's being described here, is to walk out the kind of life that makes a difference in the world around you. A little bit later, he talks about shining as lights. See, this message is, is for the church to hear. That the church is intended to be a light, the light of Christ shining in a dark world. Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind. What, what does this kind of life look like? See, this oneness is not a, a message to isolated individuals. The idea of oneness involves a community of believers coming together, not just coming together according to the text, striving together. Do you see the word? Striving. Someone's striving after something, they're going after it with all their might. For what purpose do we strive together? For the faith of the gospel. Remember Paul when he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about how one Lord, one baptism, one God, one faith. We're striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the call here to the saints in Philippi is to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And church, this is not a standalone message to the church at Philippi. 
Is there a local church meeting today who does not need God's word on conduct, becoming a saint? We all do. We all need this message. Issue of unity, oneness, like-mindedness. This is the message Paul delivers to the church at Philippi. And later on in chapter 4, you see the names of two women that he calls out in particular who are exhorted there in the text in chapter 4 to be of the same mind in the Lord. But the church as a whole needed the word. And I believe that's why, as Paul's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, so much space and time is given, attention is given to the subject matter of being of one mind. Being united in Christ, not simply in name, but in purpose. And in the day-to-day outworking of life in Christ. See, this is the charge that Paul is putting forth as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit writing this letter. Philippians 1.28 continues the idea in 27. It says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. So stand fast, he says, in one spirit, and do not be terrified in any way of your adversaries. Adversaries, that is plural. When you read... Staying in the same letter, chapter 3, look at 18 and 19. Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies. Let's be clear. They're the enemies, not of them, not of flesh and blood. What are the enemies of? The cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. See, to be terrified of your adversaries, church, according to what we read at the end of chapter 1 there, it's a statement to them of your perdition. It puts into question and to doubt who you are in Christ. It profanes the name of Christ and the gospel message. If you're terrified of your adversaries, church, you've forgotten the powerful Holy Spirit who abides in you forever. If you're in Christ. The Bible speaks, does it not, of another adversary? 1 Peter 5, 8. Remember that adversary? Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Just before Peter writes those words, he charges the the believer to be sober to be vigilant, to be watchful. Because there is an adversary at work. John 15, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. In 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. You see, if you look like the world, if you smell like the world, if you just like the things of the world, if you're going to embrace the world, the world is going to love you. Everything's going to be okay with you and the world. And Jesus says in that John 15 text, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, church, I don't know that there's a one of us in here that like to be hated. Many of us are very good at trying to please people. But when we read this, we come to understand and see that hate, hate, the world hating you, Jesus says. He's saying this before he's going to the cross in John 15. He's leaving his disciples with a message. He's leaving his followers with a message. That part of following me, in fact, a large part of following me means that you're going to deny self, that you're going to take up the cross, that you're going to then follow me. And in the midst of doing those things and walking in the way that I walked, the world's going to hate you because it hated me, Jesus said. Stand fast, Paul writes. And do not be in any way terrified by your adversaries. The fact that you have adversaries, listen to this, ought not make you fearful. It ought instead, according to the text, remind you of the gift of your salvation. That there's something different about you. And that something different about you is not what you've done. The text says that salvation is of whom? It's of God. So praise the Lord. Now, I say that, and you don't make the point, do you, right? I mean, you, we don't make the point to accumulate adversaries unnecessarily, right? Adversaries will come as you live out conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. The world harbors many who stand as enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at 29, 30. Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Having the same conflict which you saw in me. When did they see a conflict in him? Well, remember back in Acts 16. What happened? Remember that, that, uh, that young girl who was following Paul around. Remember that story? And, and the, the evil spirit gets cast out of her and, and the people that owned that slave girl didn't really take a good liking to that, did they? And they threw Paul in prison. So the conflict that you saw in me, he was in prison in Philippi. And he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And guess where he's at as he's writing this letter? He's in prison. And his chains are in Christ. So as a follow-up to 28, Paul says it's been granted to you. To whom? To the saints in Philippi. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, on behalf of the one whose name you bear, not only to believe. Notice right here. Let's stop right here. Notice even your belief is couched in the context of something granted to you. Not only to believe, but to suffer. For his sake. 
You know, as you read the Gospels, do you see Christ trying to dodge his enemies? Trying to avoid those who don't care for his word? I don't, I don't see that. His mission, when you read the gospel accounts, his mission in large part included, and we see it culminated in, at the cross. It included suffering. It included constant rejection, rebellion of men, the pain of physical turmoil and the events leading up to and including the cross. You see, conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ, the gospel found here in the word of God, not some gospel made up by man. The gospel according to Christ includes suffering, church. It's not absent of suffering. Conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ is called for in the midst of your adversaries. Verse 28. That kind of conduct is called for even in the context, in the midst of adversaries. Look at the beginning of Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. That's the first part of verse 2 there. I draw your attention in the text to three sets of therefore. Right here, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, therefore, therefore. The text is connected, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll just bring that out to show you what's come before is now connecting. There's connections happening in the text. Chapter 2 begins, therefore, okay? There are four ifs, four clauses here. And these if clauses, they take into consideration that these things are true among the body at Philippi. The text is not questioning whether these things are happening. Perhaps it would be helpful to render, since Christ is an encouragement, since you've been comforted by his love, since you've had fellowship with the Spirit, since you have experienced affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. You know, as I was reading that this week, it dawned on me that That statement, fulfill my joy. And I got thinking, you know, on the surface perhaps it may sound a little selfish. <laughs> fulfill my joy, Paul says. In light of what Christ has done, in light of what the Spirit has done in your life, is it priority to fulfill Paul's joy? Well, maybe, perhaps, it depends Maybe it would be a good thing to ask, what is Paul's joy? What is Paul's joy? He says, fulfill my joy. It would be good to know what his joy is. How would you define that joy of Paul? Well, you know what? We don't have to go anywhere other than the book of Philippians to find this out. Because the whole letter resonates with joy. Let me give you a few. What is Paul's joy? Well, we see chapter 1, verse 5. Philippians, their, their, their fellowship in the gospel. That's his joy. Or what about verse 18? What is Paul's joy? That Christ is preached. We keep going. Chapter 1, verse 25 says, Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. To be able to continue with them 
in such a way to help them progress in the faith. That was, that was part of Paul's joy. Chapter 2, 16, Paul's joy is that they would hold fast the word of life. Chapter 3, verse 1, coupled with chapter 4, verse 4, Paul's joy is to see and hear them rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Chapter 3, 19 and 20, Paul's joy would be defined as the church, the saints there living out their heavenly citizenship. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is Paul's joy? It's the people themselves. They were his joy, his crown. And verse 10 and following of chapter 4, what is Paul's joy? He's speaking of the generosity exhibited by the saints at Philippi. You see, in light of what constituted Paul's joy, the call to fulfill my joy is seen in a different light. How might Paul's joy be fulfilled? The text gives us the answers. We don't have to make it up. It's right here in the text. By being like-minded. Again, consider the messages being delivered to the church. Being like-minded. A church where minds are transformed by the renewing of Scripture. By the renewing of the Word. The Romans 12, 1 and 2 idea. Having the same love, the same love, characterized by Christ himself. That love poured out, right, as Romans says, chapter 5, verse 5. The love of God has been poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit. God has given to us. Being of one accord, walking the same direction, not at odds with one another. Being of one mind. Minds set on things of God, not on things of the earth. And we read this a few weeks back when we were going through our study in Romans. It's worth reading here. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. For what purpose? I love this. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, the call to unity, the call to like-mindedness, the call to oneness is for a purpose, that together with one mind and one mouth we might give glory to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Unity. And you can look and compare here in, in chapter 2, kind of with what Paul has already said in, in chapter 127, regard to conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ when he says, stand fast in one spirit. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. All right, so we have unity. He's just talked about in verse 2. Now verse 3, this idea of lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Not selfish ambition or conceit, but lowliness of mind. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 27, speaks of this one mind. Here it gives us this idea of lowliness 
of mind. The church is to have the same mind, not only regarding the things of God, but also in regard to evil. Remember Romans 12.9? Romans 12.9 says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. A little bit later in, chap- in that chapter of 12 of Romans, it says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And so where there is unity in verse 2 of Philippians 2, lowliness of mind can also become a reality among the saints in the church. Let each esteem others better than himself. Lowliness of mind is not thinking less of yourself. Remember, you were created in the image of God. It's thinking of yourself less. Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And you know, church, this group right here, Hope in Christ Church, has a mixture of gifts. Lowliness of mind understands that each part is important. Each part has a part to play in the body of Christ. Parts working together, according to the scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, build up the church, edify the body, and give glory to God. Giving preference, right? Romans 12, one to another. Walking in love with one another. Exhibiting this lowliness of mind toward your brothers and sisters. A spirit of humility permeating throughout the life of the body. But he's not done. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The conjunction here is significant, that that word but. (laughs) Look out not only for your own interests. You know what? That's a given. We do that by default, don't we? Looking out for our own interests. There are not too many people that have to be told, hey, look out for your own interests. That's kind of a default, isn't it? Praise the Lord, there's something else attached here. But also, look out for the interests of others. The idea of serving. The idea of getting my eyes off self and looking out and seeing there are other people around me. Seeing that in the church, I'm connected to that person sitting next to me in the chair, across the aisle, in front of me, behind me. This is not this is not about me. Paul speaks of this idea back in 127 as well when he says striving together for the faith of the gospel. Serving together, working together, doing together in light of the faith of the gospel. And the gospel shines this light and this laser and this focus upon the person of Christ. And part of this person Christ, many today, right now today, are celebrating one piece, one aspect of Christ, of this gospel, his arrival. 
Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Here's the end of the sentence. That we, that we should walk in them. We should walk in them. It's something we do together, church. We walk in these good works. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ together as a body. This is not a one-man band. We do this together as a body. Unity, lowliness of mind, serving. Paul's living, in fact, when you read about Paul and his life in the Scripture, Paul's living is defined by this kind of joy. Now look what it says in Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, he's just talked about this mind. and What, what does this mind look like? Right? What, what is it that keeps this mind, as described in Philippians 1.27 through chapter 2, verse 4, from becoming a reality in the life of the Philippians? All right, let's bring it a little closer to home. As you think about the church at Hope in Christ, do you see this kind of mind put on display? We'll bring it a little closer yet. Is this mind recognizable of those in your own home? This kind of mind. Because really, we see three things here. I just put just labels on it. Just it was helpful for me. Maybe it would be helpful for you. If not, you can let it go. But it was helpful for me to see it this way in the scripture. The idea of defining it. This mind. Defining it. And it's the mind spoken of is defined in Philippians 1, 27 through 2, verse 4. It's like... Give me some handles on what this mind looks like. And I believe 127 through 24 gives us some definition of what that mind looks like. Okay? And then we also need to, after defining it, when we define it, let's contextualize it. What's that mean? Give me a context for this mind to be lived out. We see 128. We are to live out this kind of mind in the atmosphere in the environment of opposition, enemies of the cross of Christ. Not an easy thing. But then, I just put down, picture it. Alright, so we've defined it. He's given us a context for, for how we're to live this in the midst of adversaries and opposition. But sometimes, it's just good to see an example of it, isn't it? Anybody ever just want to see? Show me how to do it. Show me what it looks like. Well, he shows us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It's Paul showing us what it looks like. Because you see, this mind that he's charging the church, this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, why ought we to follow this charge? I think from a very broad perspective, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay? We, we narrow that down a bit. We can look at Paul's life testimony. And we see that even in the same book here, Philippians 3, 17, he's, he's calling the church, join in following my example. You have us for a pattern. Church, that's not boasting. Because elsewhere he's saying, follow me as I do what? What's Paul doing? Follow the example 
See, Paul's trying to do this very thing. He's trying to live out. Live out. It's not intellectual. He's trying to live it out and follow and pattern himself after Christ. What about the possibility of carrying out such a charge as the one given in 2, verse 5? You know, I was thinking about this and asking, you know, will, will the... Will the word of God ever call you to walk in a way without providing sufficient means to accomplish it? No. Let this mind be in you. This is not an option for the church. This is not for some and a free pass for others. This mind is intended to be in you, the church. So if you sit here today and you are in Christ, know that you are the intended recipient of this. This is not too far off. The Spirit of God in you provides the fuel, the catalyst, if you will, to be able to do exactly what Paul is calling the church to do. Let this mind be in you. So give me a picture. What does this look like? This mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to know what this mind looks like? You want to see it lived out in the life of another? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, Paul says. Philippians 2, verse 5, brings a few questions to surface. First question that came to my mind was, who, who is this Jesus? We're called to have this mind in us. And this mind was a mind exhibited by this person, Jesus. Who is Jesus? And maybe today would be a good opportunity to think about that question. Who is Jesus? How do you define who he is? You know, a summary of that gospel, we see a real summary bullet. And there are, uh, there are passages in the scriptures that give us handholds on, on the gospel. But we see a real summary account of that in Corinthians 15, right? Christ died, was buried, was raised on the third day. We see the incarnate one, Emmanuel, God with us, right? Perhaps there's another question that some would consider. Some who perhaps are not in Christ. A question that maybe some skeptics, some doubters. Well, who else besides Jesus? Right? Surely there must be another candidate here to look at. Let this mind be in you, church, which was also in Christ Jesus. Why would it be so important for the church to exercise the kind of mind exhibited by Christ? Think about that for a moment. Why would it be so important for the church to exercise the kind of mind exhibited by Christ? Colossians 1.18 tells us that Christ is the head of the church. Acts 20, 28 tells us that the purchase price for the church was the blood of Christ. 
Matthew 16, 18 and 19, Christ himself said that he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. So if this mind, as Paul's saying, needs to be in you, let this mind be in you, how did this kind of mind get played out in the life of Christ? Well, we see he was like-minded with his father, right? He had the same love as his father. He was of one accord with the father, of one mind with the father. We see, secondly, he did not operate through selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, he was purposeful to always carry out the will of the Father. I'm reminded in that time in the upper room before the cross where Christ shows us that example by taking the towel and washing his feet. But here's... Here's another way Christ exercised this particular kind of mind. You see, Christ looked out for the interests of others, did he not? The cross is the prime example of how he looked out for the interests of others, church. If you are in Christ today, rejoice that he has looked out for your best interests. And he did that at the cross. Ought not this mind, illustrated in the person of Jesus, be the fixed setting for those making up his church? Ought not it be the fixed setting? I was thinking about the fixed setting. I've got a thermostat at home, and it's got like four zones. I don't know a whole lot about it. Still kind of puzzled about it, honestly. But, you know, I was beginning to wonder why the thing goes to a different setting after a certain time of the day. And I come to figure out it's got four different programmable zones, right? You can program what temperature you want it to be at a certain time of the day, certain day of the week. Well, there's a button. I love the button. It's called hold. And I can set the thing at one temperature for all day long, for every day of the week. I love that. It's great. I was excited about it. I didn't really know anything about it until I, once I really was clued in on what that button was about. And I, I share that with you because that hold button applies to this mind that Paul is speaking of. You see, it's the idea of let this mind continually, always be in you. Not just a certain time of the day. Not just on Sundays. Let this mind be in you always. The same mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Look how he continues. Look at 6, 7, 8. Who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 6 begins, Who? End of 5. Speaks of Christ Jesus. So the content in verses 6, 7, and 8, let's, let's see this clearly. It's focused upon Christ. And let's be careful here not to attach a wrong meaning to the text, a wrong takeaway, if you will, from the text. 
This is not some cold theological treatise on Jesus. Some, just solely some stiff doctrine teaching on this is who Jesus is. Okay? Yes, we can learn some things about who Jesus is in this text. No doubt about it. But I'd like for us to be able to see that the context tells you that the illustration of Christ sits in the practical application of life together in the body of Christ. Right? Philippians 1.27. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now he's talking about Christ. This Christ. If our conduct is to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's important we know who Christ is. So he's telling us. Being in the form of God. Hmm. John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. Jesus said that. Do you remember the next verse? Let me read it. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Saying I and my Father are one didn't go over very well. Or John 14, 7 through 10, speaking in a different context to his disciple, Philip. If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. And it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you've not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? Or John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You see, Jesus had no need to hold on to anything as though He needed it to prove himself equal with God. Church, when we see this, this is a beautiful picture Paul is painting for us of Christ. Philippians 2, verse 7. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You see, being in the form of God, Jesus... Some translations say emptied himself, right? Emptied himself. Made himself of no reputation. Emptied himself. Let's be clear. He did not empty himself of his divinity. Let's be very clear of this. Yet he emptied himself of some of the privileges Afforded him, being God. (laughs) What characterized, if you could think about and ask, what is it that characterized this emptying of himself? When the text says he made himself of no reputation, what did that include? What did that look like? The text tells us. Taking the form of a bondservant. To whom was Christ a bondservant? Let's be clear on this too. I believe this is, this could be borderline faulty, Understanding of the text. 
because there are some, I believe, today who are seeing all of this in light of me, in light of people, that Christ was a bondservant to us, that he went to the cross for us. Part of that is true. The idea of Christ being a bondservant. Whose will was he most, most consumed with while he was here on the earth? Yours? How about his father's? A bondservant to his father, and in the context of being a bondservant to his father, he, he then went to the cross for you, for me. It was out of being a bondservant to his father. Let's be real clear. Because you see, in the text, it even says he, not only did he serve his father, carry out the will of his father, he, even the very words he spoke were given to him by the father to speak. So taking the form of a bondservant is one of the things that characterizes this emptying of himself. What, what about the sec- second one? Coming in the likeness of men. That's another marker that, that Jesus made himself of no reputation. This coming to earth in the likeness of men. So, look at this. In, he, in, in Philippians 2.6, it says, being in the form of God. Right? Hebrews 1.3 complements that very well. Right? It talks about Jesus who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of God's person. He was the icon. You know what an icon is. An icon, an image. Right? Jesus was the icon, the express image of God. So, verse 6 tells us Christ was in the form of God. What's verse 7 tell us? Coming in the likeness of men. Being in the form of God, coming in the likeness of men. This is good. See, because Romans 8 tells us, as a compliment to Philippians 2, 7, 8, 3, and 4, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, listen to this, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, On account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, the text says, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then we have that passage in John 1.14, and the Word, the Lagos, Christ, the Word became what? Flesh. And dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. His glory, that Hebrews 1 speaks of, the brightness of His glory. We beheld his glory, John says. The angel of the Lord, in speaking to Joseph, says these words in Matthew 1, 21 to 23. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, one of the ways Christ made himself of no reputation, one of the ways that he emptied himself was in his arrival to earth in the likeness of men. He became flesh and blood like us. Why? Hebrews 2.17 says that he might be a merciful high priest in the things pertaining to God. This mediator, right? Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The mediator between God and men. 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So let's be clear on his arrival in the likeness of men. This was no experiment on God's part. This was no game. This was no vacation. Hey, Jesus, why don't you go down to earth for a time and you'll come back a little bit later. No, this was not any of that. His arrival surely has nothing to do with the worldly trappings, commercialization that goes on today. The purpose of God sending was not simply for Jesus to come. See, his coming and his being were connected. God in the flesh, verses 6 and 7. His coming had a purpose too. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. His coming was closely connected to his dying. Do we see that? His coming was closely connected to his dying. The man, Jesus Christ, humbled himself and became obedient to death, not just any kind of death. The death of this man meant something. The death of this man secured something for you. The death of this man paid your ransom, redeemed you, set you free from the former slavery to sin that was in you and the guilt attached to it. You see, his death means righteousness for you through the blood of Jesus. You're justified, you're declared not guilty through the death of this one man. But he had to come first. He had to come. And it was necessary for him to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8, 3 and 4, on account of sin. To say that he came to die would be true. But to say that he came to die without addressing the reason for dying would be incomplete. On account of sin, he came and his coming pointed toward his dying, but his dying had a purpose as broad as the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is why, church, it's so painfully sad to see people celebrating Christ, Christmas, excuse me, without any understanding of who Christ is, why he came to earth, or or how their sin impacted his arrival. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, we sang. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That ought to be our prayer. That the earth would receive her king. And, you know, here's a, here's a thought from the text. The charge has been put forth in verse 5 to let this mind be in you. An example, then, has been set forth. Picture, right? 6, 7, and 8. He exemplified the kind of mind the church is called to have. And while being God in the flesh, Jesus doesn't go off and do his own thing. He doesn't abandon the plan of the Father. No, he does quite the opposite. He takes on the form of a bondservant. He humbles himself and becomes obedient to a shameful death on the cross. And, and there are, there's no, no man... This is important in this text in Philippians 2. There's no man with greater privileges available to him than Jesus. And yet Jesus lays them down. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love because he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we also, 
Here's the follow-up to, to that statement. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Is that not church conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ? Paul shifts in 9, 10, and 11. The active agent from Jesus to God. There's another therefore. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this Jesus, in verse 8, who humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross, carrying out the very will of his Father, is now, very, is now highly exalted by God, in verses 9, 10, and 11. The name of Jesus is given preference above every name. And not only that, but at the name of Jesus, two things, text says, will happen. Every knee should bow. Where? Of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. Any place where that doesn't occur or doesn't apply? (laughs) He covers it all. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What else? Every tongue should confess. Confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And who gets glory for it all? God the Father. You see, God has highly exalted His Son and given Him the name above every name. And if God has done this, if if He's placed His seal of approval, if you will, on Jesus Why then are there still so many who reject him? Why are there so many who persist to be wise in their own eyes in light of what God has done? Every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The one who came, came on account of sin to save his people from their sins. And his coming led to his dying. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be what? To be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why. You see, he came on account of our sin. And he took care of that sin. And God has highly exalted him. I love how in one verse it talks about Christ humbling himself and the next verse God exalting him. The immediate application, 12 and 13. Hang in there, we're done. There's a lot here. Really skimming the surface on a lot of this, but I really saw 127 and 213 fitting together nicely. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... His absence. His absence is due to what? His chains in Christ. Okay? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to to will, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. See, I I believe we end where we began. (laughs) Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ in 127. In 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The charge to let this mind be in you in chapter 2, verse 5, goes out to the saints in Philippi and to you here today, hope in Christ. You see, it's in light of what God did. And here's what he did. Both in sending his son and exalting and giving him the name above every name. God did those things. He's the active agent in those things. 
in light of what God did. The application, the call in verse 12 is to work out. Work out your salvation. Exercise your salvation. You're not working for your salvation, right? But you're working out your salvation, the salvation which comes from God. Conduct in a manner worthy of the gospel. Do all things, verse 14, without complaining and disputing. Seek unity for Christ's sake. Be like-minded toward the things of God. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. Why? Romans 15, 6 says that you may, all of us, that we, with one mind, with one mouth, may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God gets glory when his church is doing that together. It's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So as you work out your own salvation, remember that it is God who works in you through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And the church is knit together by that Ephesians 4 idea of one faith, one spirit, one God. We have a one word that we work off of together and call each other to account for. Early in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so not only does God work in you in the present to will and to do for his good pleasure, but he will complete the work. We can just put a stamp of certainty, a stamp of assurance that he will complete the work he started in you. For how long? Until the day of Jesus Christ. That's, that's good news. That is good news, church. And so as you spend the remainder of today, perhaps with family, friends, I'd like just to leave you with this reminder of the significance of Christ's coming in the likeness of men. Christ's coming in the likeness of men. Two things. First of all, he came into the world to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. Okay? Romans 8 complements that and says he came on account of sin. The second thing is he came into the world that we might live through him. He came into the world that we might live through him. Where did I get that from? I didn't make it up. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Why? That we might live through him. Isn't that not the heart cry of what Paul is getting at in here in Philippians 2. Live this out. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. God sent Jesus that we might live through him. This mind that we're called to take upon, according to the scripture in Philippians chapter 2, it's the mind Christ himself exhibited. And it's through that person of Jesus Christ that we are to live out, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm going to encourage you to stand. I just want to read one scripture and we're going to be done. I'm going to close with, with prayer. But if you would stand, First um, Peter chapter 1. I'd just like to close. First Peter chapter 1, I just, I'd like to read starting in verse 13. 
Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, church. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest. He was made known. He was revealed in these last times for you. Okay, now, some would be tempted to stop right there and be able to see and point, point this whole message, this whole Christ message, back to me. It's about me. No, no, read the text. And understand the whole of the text of Scripture. I'll read that, verse 20, part of it. He was manifest in these times for you who, through him, believe in God. We also found out in Romans 8, he was manifest on account of what? Sin. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. You see, it's the same God who in Philippians 2 gave him the name above every name. So that your faith and hope are in God. That's a wonderful passage. Wonderful truths. Wonderful words to hold on to on this day. In the days yet to come, the hope is that we see and understand this gospel. That we strive together for the faith of this gospel of Christ. And we see that this is yet another call to the church. Church, I, I hope and pray today that the word of Jesus Christ makes its home in your heart that you see the word of God for what it truly is, for what it's intended to be. And that Christ, that this day in particular, that we don't just talk about his coming, but we see that the scripture connects his coming to his dying. And we see from the text today that it's not primarily in this Philippians 2 text about his coming, but it sits in the context of the application of the life, the conduct of the believer in Christ. This kind of mind that we are to be living out. And it's exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for Christ and sending his son Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray this mind spoken of in Philippians 2 
Pray this mind would be evident in the lives of each one here in this body. I pray, Lord, that as we see what this mind looks like, that we would also be drawn to the one who exhibited this very mind, and that's Christ. That we would see how he exhibited that life, that mind in his life. And be drawn to that in such a way, Lord, that we would pattern ourselves, that, that, as 1 John 2, 6 says, that he who abides in him, if we're going to abide in Christ, that we would then desire to walk as Christ himself walked. The thrust of this particular writing today, Lord, is about living it out. It's about the conduct, becoming of a child of God. Father, I pray that you would move us from intellectually knowing about what your word says to walking by faith. Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Allowing your word to govern all of what we do. Looking to your word always for instruction. Embracing your word as a light and a lamp to our feet. Help us on this day, Father. Be grateful. I pray that each day we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for the opportunity to be called a child of yours. And Father, in light of that judgment to come, I pray that not only would we carry our, our lives here and conduct ourselves with fear and trembling, working out our own salvation, but Lord, we would also understand in light of that judgment to come that we would be diligent to persuade men. Oh Lord, work in us, I pray. Thank you that you are working in us as we work out the salvation that you've given to us. Oh, Father, may we do that to your glory and may you receive great honor and may your church here at Hope in Christ give you honor and glory through the things that they do, the words that they speak, the thoughts that they have, the motives that they have. Lord, that it would all be given to you that you would receive great glory here at Hope in Christ Church that others might see you. Thank you for Jesus. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.